I was still listening to like Russell Moore and TGC. 2020 hit and it was just like, boom, I can't do this anymore. I felt mm -hmm. like I was, I was unsettled as a pastor with my own convictions. I need to get clarity on that. I spent 2020 just deep diving on different issues like critical race theory, racism in the church, um, government overreach, all these kind of matters. And once I went back to the records, once I went back to church history, I was like, dude, tons of people have thought about this. Welcome to the Plain Speech Podcast. My name is Michael Clary. Today, I'm welcoming my friend Chase Davis to join me for a conversation about some of the big shifts that we've seen taking place in the Christian cultural landscape over the last few years, where we've seen high-profile pastors, churches, and Christian institutions drift away from faithfulness to the truth of Scripture. Before we get to that, though, I've got a couple of announcements I want to share with you. The first one is about the Worldview Youth Academy, where Christian teens can level up their understanding of life, culture, and faith. So at the Worldview Youth Academy, Christian teens will transform their worldview. It'll stimulate their critical thinking and also enable them to engage with like-minded peers. If you want to learn more about their curriculum and to hear testimonials from students, check out EzraInstitute.com and then navigate over to the Training Programs tab on the drop-down menu. Again, EzraInstitute.com, and head over to Training Programs tab in the drop-down menu. There's also an early bird price of $50 off of the enrollment if you register now. The second announcement I have is about a conference being put on by King's Domain. And King's Domain is a ministry that was founded by myself and my friend Wade Thomas. And uh, King's Domain is also the ministry that's behind this podcast, the Plain Speech Podcast and another podcast that Wade and I do together called uh, Current Reality Podcast. The King's Domain Conference, the theme is Gendered Virtue, Men and Women Who Take Dominion. It's coming up April 18 through 20 uh, of 2024. And the conference uh, is about helping equip you to live out Christian virtue as men and women who are on a mission together. I'm really excited about the speaker lineup. We got some great uh, speakers coming. Joe Rigney, Michael Foster, Toby Sumter, Shane Morris, Matt McBee, and myself will be uh, the speakers. And uh, if you want more information about the conference, um, I'll have a link in the show notes where you can check that out. Uh, so make sure you go there and hopefully we'll see you in April at the conference. And with all of that, now here's my interview with Chase. I'm excited to welcome my friend Chase Davis on my first podcast interview. Chase, you get to be the guinea pig as I figure this thing out. Um, That's great. <laughs> I first got to know Chase when somebody on an Acts 29 message board posted a link to Chase's podcast. And I remember listening to this podcast and being uh, really delighted and kind of floored thinking, this guy gets me. Uh, he's saying the things that I have been thinking but didn't have the words for so foolproof theology podcast uh, was a was a, was a big uh, blessing to me right during um, COVID, and a lot of the things Chase was talking about um, was super helpful. So um, I listened to these episodes and uh, was hooked. I've been listening to this ever since, and I sent Chase a a Facebook message and just told him, "Okay, man, I love your stuff. Keep it up." Encouraging him, and uh, we ended up connecting at Acts Twenty Nine's annual conference in Denver. Um, that year, and have stayed in stayed in touch ever since. So, appreciate you you uh, coming on the podcast and spending some time with me today, Chase. Hey, super happy to. Uh, thank for the work you're doing, and thank you for the encouragement. Man. It's uh, it means a lot when I get messages like that. Um, so, uh, really blessed by that. So glad to be here. Uh, praise God. So, I'd, I'd love to hear just to get to know some of your backstory about how you got into ministry, got into church planning. Uh, can you can you start there and just tell us how you got to uh, go into ministry the way you did? Yeah, so I grew up in the church, in the Southern Baptist Church, a big mega church in Dallas, Texas. Um, was uh, saved at an early age, baptized when I was eight. Um, and, you know, when you're eight, your comprehension of the gospel is pretty childlike, you know? You just yeah, have faith. Sure. And then started going to youth group and became more... Uh, convictional and uh, and was going to a Christian school and just started volunteering in different areas at the Christian school to lead Bible studies and worship. 
And uh, that seemed to be something I enjoyed. Uh, I wanted to honor God. Uh, the Christian school did a good job of teaching us that we should honor God in anything we do. And so I was doing that in high school. Um, they do, do great like mentoring things and discipleship stuff there. Um, when I was in high school, as a lot of, I was just discipling a dude yesterday about he's going to, uh, he's applying to college right now. And it's a big deal. You know, there's a lot as you're growing up in high school, you're trying to figure out. And so one of those questions was like, God, what do you want for me? What is it you want me to do with my life? And uh, my first name is actually Joshua legally. And my dad wrote me a letter um, when I was young, kind of like telling me why he named me Joshua. And it was mm. after the, you know, character, the the story of the man Joshua in the Bible. And so I was reading that story uh, in high school, trying to discern the Lord's will. I don't know if you remember when you're a young Christian, one of the things you might do is, you know, just kind of plop open the Bible and say, what do you have for me, the Lord? You know, there's yeah. not not a lot of structure to the spirituality sometimes. And so uh, so I would do that sometimes, but I just like, okay, I'm going to open up Joshua, see if the Lord has anything. And I just sensed uh, an impression from the Lord in Joshua 1, 9, uh, to be strong and courageous there you go. and uh, to lead God's people. Now, the wonderful thing about that kind of general calling is I don't think that's exclusive to me. I think every Christian can can take that, but it, it kind of set me in a direction. You know, I'm going to choose a path. I'm going to choose opportunities that um, I feel like would honor God with whatever gifts I have. So fast forward a little bit, get into college. I was a chaplain for my fraternity. I was volunteering in different capacities, met my wife there. Um, I sensed a strong call to be on the mission field um, just because that's like what the church uh you know, Southern Baptists are kind of mm -hmm. famous for their missionary efforts. And so I sensed a call to the mission field j just because that that was always kind of highlighted for me as, well, you want to serve God. This is like one of the preeminent ways to kind of serve him. That's um, where the real Christians go. That's where the real Christians go. <laughs> you got to be radical. Um, <laughs> I used to feel so, guilty. You know, I was like, I, if I don't dude, go into ministry, I feel guilty. <laughs> I know. And I know. And so like, you know, I had my friend, I had all my friends were like, you know, I feel called to this people group. And I was like, I don't sense that, you know, I, uh, I, I do like traveling. I, I went on mission trips. I really enjoyed those. It was, it was very helpful. I know short-term missions gets ragged on a lot, but, um, and for, for good reasons, but for me, it was like really eye-opening, you know, to see Christians around the world worshiping in different places, tribes in the Amazon, uh, Honduras, Mexico. Well, anyways, uh, when Kim and I got married, she knew that I sensed this calling on my life. She also knew I was getting a degree that would open up doors perhaps in uh, different countries. And so, is that a demon that just wandered into the room there? Yeah. Go get out yeah. of here. I rebuke you. Yeah. <laughs> my dog needed out. Um, so yeah, she knew this calling on my life and um, you know, when I like was, when we were talking about getting married, I was like, babe, you have to be okay with like, I want to make sure that, you know, that God may call us to go live in a hut in Africa, you know? And, uh, she was like, I understand, you know, I think her, her request to me was like, as long as we don't live in a double wide somewhere, that's, that's my requirement. And I was like, okay, I think I can manage that. And so we started exploring opportunities, me being young and kind of idealistic. I was like applying to go with pioneers or frontiers. I honestly can't remember which. And they have like a three-year training program. I think it's um, in one of the states here. And they were like, we can send you to Pakistan. And I was like, okay, cool. And my wife is sitting there crying next to me on the sofa. And I was like, I think we're not on the same page. Um, so we, after college, I was like, okay, we need to like get aligned. Um, and so we just moved to Colorado right after we graduated from college. Um, went up there to Gunnison, Colorado, met my friend Matt, uh, who I didn't know at the time, but now we're best friends. And we planted our church together, but he was a pastor in Gunnison and he knew kind of my, um, my desires, my, what I sensed my calling was, but I was just working construction. Um, you know, I wanted to go to seminary. And so he invited me to explore church planning with him. And so that's kind of how I got called into ministry. It was kind of like, always like, I'm going to try something. Kim and I did go to the mission field for a little while, uh, about half a year. And that was not a great experience um, Where for were a variety you? of reasons. One, because, uh, do what? Where were you? Uh, we were in the Maldives, uh, which is in the Indian Ocean. Oh, wow. So the way okay. I, I, I had discerned it was Kim doesn't want to go 
but she's open to being convinced to go. So what what better way to convince one's wife than to find a beautiful island nation that has wonderful beaches, colorful water, and we get to teach <laughs> English as a second language. And, uh, you know, I thought that would be a really like great way to like convince her. And it did not. And it, it, it was a refining thing for me. I kind of refer to it as a season in the desert um, of mm -hmm. temptation, of trials uh, to prepare me for what was to come in Boulder. So coming to plant Boulder after going to an Islamic dictatorship is like, feels like cake sometimes because, <laughs> you know, like you can gather openly, you can share the gospel, you can speak the language. Over there, if you learn the language, you would get kicked out of the country. You couldn't learn mm. the local language. Only only 300,000 people in the Maldives speak Devehi. And if you learn that language, you get put on a watch list if you're a foreigner. So, uh, so wow. you couldn't even learn the local language. So yeah, it was mm. an intense time, but that was kind of how I got called into ministry. Started seminary the same week we started uh, gathering with some people who were already on the ground here uh, doing gospel work and uh, haven't looked back since. I, I say that. I have looked back since. I have constantly gone to the Lord and been like, is this really what you want for me? Um, and kind of like what you talked about with guilt and being a ministry, it's like early on, I felt like I had to, like I'm, I'd be a bad Christian. Mm -hmm. And of course, any Christian who disobeys the Lord, um, that would be not what you should do. However, I think many uh, people get into ministry and they feel a, a sense of burden from the Lord that may be a little bit exaggerated to where it's like, God's gonna God's gonna be mad at me if I do something else, and uh, that may be true in certain circumstances for sure, as far as your vocation. But for me, about six years ago, it was kind of this re revelatory moment where it's like, no, I'm choosing to do this. I'm not just doing this because that's what I have to do. I want to be a ministry because I, I really do enjoy it. I'm good at it and matches my skill sets. And so, choosing to be in ministry was a kind of a big shift in in attitude towards what I do here at the Well. Yeah. I think a lot of people go into ministry or they do any, do something for the Lord and the, there's mixed motives initially and the Lord sanctifies the motives over time uh, and they're, they get more and more pure as you get more involved in the work. I know that was the case for me. Uh, there's There's been a lot of, I was driven by guilt, a, a, a fair amount. Um, and this has been a matter of sanctification throughout my life of being motivated properly rather than, you know, just a lot of this guilt and I'm doing things out of raw duty. Um, but the Lord has done that. I mean, I've over, over time I've gotten to be a lot more, uh, just felt more freedom and joy in what I'm doing for the thing I'm doing and not just, not just being driven by some sense of duty. If I don't do this, then God's going to be mad at me or something. So, but there's, there's a lot of guilt in the evangelical world. Uh, you mentioned, you know, I don't know if you're specifically thinking of the radical book, but yes, I, I remember I when I, Okay, you were. When I first read that book, I felt horrible. I was like, I am a terrible human being. I'm a terrible Christian um, if I don't do it exactly this way. And what was weird is I knew it was, I knew it was wrong. I knew I disagreed with it, and I knew this was guilt-inducing. But I couldn't resist the, the the feeling was still there. I couldn't control that guilt feeling. Um, so that 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 ties into what I wanted to ask you next. Like, what whenever you got into ministry, what were some of the who were some of the biggest influences on you? Um, like your, were there big were there big names or movements that shaped your thinking about ministry and church and being a pastor? Yeah. So when I first got into it, I mean, obviously the people in my life, like a Bible teacher in high school named Hank Harmon, who also worked at Canica Camps, where I was a camper and then was a um, a counselor there for a summer as well. Um, that had a big influence on me. It's just broadly evangelical, competitive, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, growing up in the church, uh, Pastor Jack Graham down at Prestonwood had a big influence on me in terms of just passion for preaching, for proclaiming, um, mm -hmm. you know, the need for salvation. Um, and then besides that, there were kind of, it's kind of weird, you know, growing up, there wasn't a lot of like, a lot of our friends today are like way into like Calvin and the Reformers or the Puritans or Augustine or whoever it may be. I didn't, I wasn't familiar with a lot of that. You kind of get kind of just pop Eva literature. And so I had read one John Piper book and I was kind of like, okay. And I wasn't a Calvinist at the time, so I didn't really get it. Um, but I was reading a lot of different stuff from Bonhoeffer. I mean, I read The Cost of Discipleship. These were just impactful works in my early Christian life um, before I got into ministry. So just this kind of like 
big emphasis on evangelism, um, saving souls, um, missions, that kind of stuff was uh, really huge for me. I remember when I was in college, Kim and I were engaged at the time, and I was at a bookstore and I was like, hey, Martin Luther, I've heard of that guy. <laughs> I, I should read a book by him. And so I picked up a book on Luther and I was kind of like, man, this is like, one, it's hard to read, but two, like, this is really different than than the church I grew up in. And uh, so I think those were some of the big influences. I'm, I'm convinced the biggest influences, while we all love books, um, uh, myself included, I, I have lots of them. Um, I think the biggest influences are the people in your lives that you're you're kind of like con- conversing with on a regular basis, day to day, especially people you're like that are seeing you in person. And so mm-hmm. um, my parents had a big influence on me theologically. And then just kind of the legacy of my family. My granddad was a Assemblies of God minister. Um, all of his brothers were the same. Um, one of them was like president of Southwestern Assemblies of God and and wow. Waxahachie. And so um, that that always was like kind of lingering in the background. Like, you know, this is something that our family does. So, mm. um, so I would say those are some of the. I wish I would say, you know, Calvin or you know, this one Puritan or whatever. But that's just not. It wasn't reality for me. I was I was reading lots of different stuff. I was honestly just going to the Barnes and Noble uh, Christian section, which is not recommended. Uh, and just, <laughs> not anymore. Uh, yeah, I was like, oh, this book, you know, has an interesting title. I'll pick it up. Um, but you know, my mainly the pastors in my life had the biggest influence. That's great to hear, especially being a pastor now uh, myself and yourself. You, uh, it, it, it's cool to know that, and and I'm sure that we we can never calculate just how much or what type of impact we have on other people. Um, but to think that there are people that come through my ministry or your ministry that may end up being pastors, missionaries, or authors, scholars, whatever, someday, that, that's really gratifying. To, it's really gratifying to think about. One of the things that uh, I, I, I've sensed in your ministry, and we've talked about this some in the past, um, would be, I suppose, a, a theme of a shift that, um, and, and I'd love to hear how you would characterize that. It could be, you know, a shift in your own thinking, or it could be a shift in everybody else's thinking while you've more or less stayed in one place. But but this the shift that has happened in the last, you know, 10 years-ish, um, how have you experienced that? And can you, can you, you know, walk through just sort of how that played out in your life and ministry? Yeah, so that's a it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. I don't know that there's a lot of good literature on it, but basically theological development over time, um, when you look at either scholars or pastors from the past, I'm I'm really interested to explore because when we become Christians, the fantasy is that somehow we're like we're born again and then everything's good. You know, we got mm-hmm. our theology in order, we've got everything dialed in. And uh that is not the case. That's <laughs> we're, right we're people in process, we're people who need to be discipled and continue to mature. And so, you know, one of the shifts for me was like, I grew up, you know, obviously in Dallas. And so a fairly conservative uh, climate back then, you know, a mega church that, you know, had huge 4th of July things and, and, you know, American flags and that kind of stuff. And in high school, I kind of like was like, I don't understand this. I mean, I was still like wearing the cowboy hat, going hunting, all that kind of stuff. But I was really conflicted because what I was hearing from the kind of evangelical pietistic culture was competition is bad. Uh, almost masculinity itself is a problem. I read Wild at Heart, but I don't know that Wild at Heart really, like it didn't exactly celebrate um, men as designed. It, it tried to, but it just, it kind of warped a lot of views. I go to college and I get into a lot of, uh, I didn't know it at the time, uh, almost liberation theology with like Shane Claiborne, very Anabaptist. Mm. And so then we- You went through a Shane Claiborne up. phase? Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> talk about radical. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wrote in Jesus for president one year, like literally, because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, I was just a young guy just trying to figure it out. And, uh, you know, so I'm down at A&M, Texas A&M, very, very conservative school, but I'm like growing my hair out, you know, uh, in my, in our house that we lived in, I didn't even have a bed. I had a hammock attached to the ceiling. Um, you know, I was like, I was borderline hippie. Um, and so we move overseas. I'm really confused because the people in, 
in Muslim countries are like, oh, America, it's a Christian nation. And they're like, Britney Spears, she wears a cross around her, her, her neck. And I'm like, no, that, that's not how that works. Uh, and so then moved to Boulder to plant. And what I didn't know is lurking in the background, there was kind of all these voices I was listening to that what we'd call now deconstructionist mm-hmm. that were like trying to just like get everything out of cultural Christianity and just like get back to like a core message. Um, and then once I got on the ground in Boulder, I saw how not just counterproductive that was, but how it lacked integrity. It lacked a certain sense of like, no, that's not true. And that's not who I am. It really, hmm. I mean, to be honest, like when I moved to Boulder, and we planted with Matt and the team. Um, my mindset was as a missionary. And so I was thinking like, if I were to go to a Muslim country, what would I wear? What would I yeah. eat? What would I, and so like it, it, like one of the big turning points, I know this sounds stupid, but like, I was like, well, if I want to contextualize the gospel here, I should probably drive a Prius, wear a scarf and go hang out at this liberal coffee shop. And I was like, dude, like that's not, I'd be a fraud, you know, yeah, like that's, that's not, not who you. I am. That's not, that's not me. And then the other thing was like one of the kind of local guys here when he met us, he was like, well, you're going to have to leave all your A&M stuff behind, your sports teams that you like behind. You're going to have to embrace our team. And I was like, I don't, that you don't know me. That's never going to happen. Like I can, <laughs> I, I can, I'm not going to, maybe I won't be as forward about it, but like, that's just not going to happen. And so these kind of things were just kind of big shifts early on. I started getting into more cultural stuff um, vis-a-vis PJ Media, which I don't know if it's defunct now, but it was like very conservative content, but I was still listening to like Russell Moore and TGC. And so I was always conflicted. I was listening to Tim Keller. I subscribed to the New York Times. I was trying to read it every Sunday, like he told me to, like a yeah. good pastor should. And yet I was still listening to all this like conservative content. I was going to Denver Seminary with Doug Grotice, who's the most conservative he was. He He's since uh, announced he's resigning there and moving on. But he was like Francis Schaeffer, Nancy Piercy, making us read all this stuff. Hmm. And so I'm going through this like crucible time uh, theologically while we're planting, which I think was really interesting because it applies your theology almost immediately, which can be dangerous because I was going through cage phase. Yeah. And so I was like meeting with a bunch of dudes and it wasn't going well <laughs> in the conversations. Um, but one of those guys is an elder at our church now. So, you know, it worked <laughs> out. Um, but up until like 2016... Um, I was kind of like still trying to figure it out. And then 2020 hit and it was just like, boom, you know, like, um, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I felt mm-hmm. like I was, I was unsettled as a pastor with my own convictions. And so I needed to get clarity on that. I spent 2020 just deep diving on different issues like critical race theory, racism in the church, um, government overreach, all these kind of matters. And once I went back to the records, once I went back to church history, I was like, dude, tons of people have thought about this. Tons of people have thought in a different way than what I'm being told. Mm-hmm. And I think other people should know about that. And so that that was kind of the shift for me is like, what would it look like to live more um, with integrity as a man, yeah. both in terms of my theological convictions, but also how I apply that theology to culture and everyday life. Um, because a lot of times, like I remember early on, Matt has always been a good man of integrity and conviction, um, even on an issue of like uh, sanctity of life. So early on in our church plant, we did Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I was the guy on staff that was like, ooh, should we do that? I don't know. We don't want to offend people. And I was like, no, like, this is clear. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'll follow that. Matt's a man of courage. And so Matt's been a great source of encouragement for me in that as well. Um, But those are kind of some of the shifts where like, man, I just want to get historical. I want to be faithful. I want to trust the Lord with the fruit. I want to, I want to try to save souls, win souls for Christ as, as Southern Baptists might say. Um, But, but it just became more like, dude, I'm just going to be honest with what I'm thinking and I'm going to do so publicly and let the chips fall where they may. And so, uh, that's unsettled a lot of people, but it's also been encouraging a lot of people too. you know, some people will come up to me and be like, well, surely no one's coming to your church. That's new. And I'm like, no, we have new people every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And then other people will be like, well, you know, I'm concerned about your online presence. And I'm like, well, other people are greatly encouraged by it. So (laughs) it's kind of a perception game, you know, like, I don't know Mm -hmm. what you want me to do with that feedback. I'm hearing you. I can always grow and learn. I'm trying to grow and learn and process, and I'm I'm um, I'm kind of open about that. So that's been some of the shifts in my my uh, my approach and my theological development over time. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a there's like a, a, a missional side of a change, 
was there a corresponding pastoral side as far as the way you would shepherd your own people and disciple Christians? Did that happen too? I think so. I think it was happening at the same time. So I was studying a lot of John Frame uh, in seminary, and that's uh, who my my book uh, riffs on his uh, concept, which is a mouthful called triperspectivalism. There this it is. book? Thank you. Yeah, yeah I got a copy book. of it right you got here. It. Um, so yeah, I was like reading that um, at the same time. So the way I pastored people, the way we pastor people at the well, we were always trying to like figure out how to do that well. And like what the proper place of authority is for a pastor, what he mm-hmm. should be speaking into. Um, you know, one of the biggest pain points for me as a pastor has been uh, when people choose to kind of just leave for whatever reason. You don't have a youth group. I disagree with Calvinism. I don't yeah. like you, you know, whatever it may be. <laughs> and so that that also was in that mix of change was like these departures are taking too big of an emotional toll on me. And I think that something is wrong with me because of mm. how much time I'm exerting wondering how could I have done that different to keep them at my church. And I think when a pastor's in that place, it creates a lot of problems because um, instead of viewing the ministry as like, I'm choosing to be here and I'll be here as long as I can and try to be faithful with what I got. And if people choose to come or go, you know, I it's not my necessarily purview. Um, if that's an attitude, you can you can be in a healthier spot. But if you're constantly trying to please people or yeah. figure out like, oh man, <clears throat> you know, like, yeah, let's start a youth group. If you're constantly trying to start programs to keep people, all that kind of stuff, it really creates a lot of pressure that I view as uh, really uh, harmful for just pastors as people um, mm. relationally. And so the the approach to discipleship and informing people, um, I would say it's changed, but not too much. Like we've always been like, I remember meeting with a guy early on and this was probably too dramatic, okay, uh, as I can tend to be. But, I, you know, I told him, he was a little bit younger than me, and I was in seminary, and I was like, hey, so like part of the discipleship is I'm going to tell you what you should think about the Bible. And he was like, you can't tell me what to think about the Bible. And I was like, I, I'm I'm confused. Like, that's I thought that's literally part of what we do is <laughs> like help you think clearly about the Bible. I could have probably phrased it better. But even early on, that was kind of my temperament. It's like, no, I'm a pastor. And I'm discipling people, making disciples, helping to build up the body. Um, so I don't think our discipleship has all, changed all that much. I would just say it's more mature. It's more, uh, I would say it's more loving and more mm-hmm. kind um, in how we apprehend the maturity of people and then how we receive questions or challenges and then how we uh, shepherd people along the way. It just has less, it has less of an edge in the sense that like it's not as uh, immature. It's more like, no, we're not going to have women pastors at our church. I understand mm-hmm. why that may offend you. Happy to talk about it with you instead of just kind of like caveating and nuancing it to death. Yeah. Um, so I would say that's that's a, a change that we've seen. Yeah, I, I think one thing that is I, I never heard much about, if anything, in seminary or, or since is, and so it's something I've just had to discover on my own, is just my own... You, you touched on this earlier too, the idea that as pastors, we grow also. Um, it's like our job is to help a group grow, the whole church, but there's also our own growth that we go through. And that means that there will be convictions that that can shift. And I'm, I mean, obviously it's not good if you have radical changes. Um, right. You know, if you be, go from Calvinism to Arminianism or something, you know, you know a, a, an extreme change, but there's going to be things that... Um, we're ignorant when we're young, and then as we get older, we preaching through the Bible will do this for you. you. You're forced to deal with different texts, and that will shape your ideas. And then you end up, um, you end up sharing what you're learning. You, you're preaching your convictions, and you couple that with what we experienced over the last five, ten years, um, massive cultural upheaval. And I knew massive cultural upheaval was happening as it happened. Um, I remember um, in 2008 feeling very conflicted because on the one hand, uh, I, I went through a, I went, th- I, I went through like a critical race theory phase and I was never like fully into it and understood all the lingo, but there was a, there was a, a compassion and a compassion within me that had been weaponized and I didn't realize it and a desire, uh, I believed, I totally believed the narrative of, of black people being oppressed and that sort of thing. And, and that's not to say that there isn't, uh, you know, real racism that happens, but 
But on the whole, it was overblown in my mind and I felt compelled to do something about it. So in 2008, I knew the policies of Barack Obama. Um, it's like he's a Democrat and he believes all the things that Democrats believe and it was wicked. Um, and yet I, I wanted to believe that this would represent a positive step forward for black folks in the country to work. Okay, we can now we can now get over this scourge of racism and slavery in our country, and this will be a so maybe it's a maybe this is the price that we pay for moving forward. And so I felt very, I remember feeling depressed when he was elected, um, while also wanting to believe the best and be hopeful, and then realizing over the next eight years that he was exactly who I thought he was, and racism, you know the the. Things just got worse and worse. The narrative about around race and the the hostility, racial tension and hostility grew worse and worse. Only to where now you would, uh, it, it, it's hard to imagine that um, it, the, things are so much better now by objective measures, but the perception is so much worse. Um, and so as I watched these things unfold, um, a couple of things were happening. One was I real that I started to realize. Things aren't as I thought. Um, I've read the books. I did all. I, I did the work, as they say. I did the reading, um, and I I listened to voices of color and all of these things. And the more I understood what was really happening, the more I didn't believe what we're being told. And yet, I was firmly entrenched in an evangelical subculture that bought into it, and to some degree bought into it because they saw me buying into it. So now I'm like, okay, I've got to back up. I've got to back us all out of this corner that we'd been right. we'd been put into. And as you start to challenge narratives that you previously held, it does it raises the anxiety level of the people that are in your church, such that they are now upset, triggered, and then you're having to deal with the changes in your own theology. Uh, help other people work through how they're processing those changes. And some of them are changing with you and others are resisting it. And then it creates this pressure cooker environment where um, it, it's it's going to explode. And you would hope that there would be some welcoming of a pastor. It's like, hey, you know, I see things more clearly now, more biblically now, and I, and I can demonstrate from scripture that change and articulate it. But that's unwelcome because it's different and then you're having to deal with the emotional fallout. And, and, and I've just, I've seen like people are emotional thinkers. Um, I know you're a rational guy. Uh, I, I, for me, it's a, a I, I feel things deeply, but I'm very much a rational type of thinker and I value that very much. But I'm just seeing more and more, it's like people are irrational creatures. They just don't think yeah. logically. And so now yeah. it's like, there's a, it, it's created, I think it's created in an environment where there's a lot of pastors who may find themselves in a similar situation where they, They've kind of put themselves in a corner and they can't get out, and they they're basically prevents growth. Uh, they 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 cannot grow themselves because if they do, the pitchforks and torches will be out, and they'll have a, a an angry mob ready for their scalp. Does, does that does that uh, resonate with you at all from your own experience? Yeah, and I think it creates a lot of. Uh, I mean, just from my experience, it, it creates a a feeling that you're faking it. You know, like yeah. you've got to please people. And it, it it can that can build resentment because you're not walking honestly before the face of God, and so when your convictions are, that you see biblically and that are in line with Christian tradition, you're having to mute those um, to such a degree that you're like, man, I don't believe this stuff. Like, and then you've created an environment around you where, like, if you were to say what you believe out loud you know, you might get fired or half your mm -hmm. church would leave. It can, you can either kind of like be like, well, I guess this is just a job now and mm -hmm. I perform my job. You, if you're a man of passion and conviction, it can create a lot of uh, turmoil emotionally. You because, become a hireling. Yeah. You become a hireling where you're just kind of like, I'm putting in the reps, I'm doing what I have to do just to get to retirement. And uh, I think that's really uh, I would I would call it wicked. You know, I want to have more compassion yeah. for those guys, but at the same time, that that that's a pretty wicked thing for a, a servant of the Lord in a pastoral position to be in, is to not be truthful with the comprehensive nature of Christ's lordship. And so, yeah, I think I see a lot of pastors wrestling with that. Is like, okay, now I see 
but what do I do about it? So that's a huge question. It's something that we wrestled with at the well. I probably um, was kind of more like uh, fire ready aim um, <laughs> in terms of my approach, you know, um, which is funny because I've always met, that's always been Matt's temperament in terms of like starting new things. Uh, but on these kind of matters, that was kind of my temperament was like, man, like, I'm just going to go for it and we'll see what happens. Yeah. And uh, I learned a lot along the way. So you can pay a heavy price when you do that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's the same phenomena that we're talking about here. It, it can happen in a local church and that's where it's most personal because the conflict lands in your living room. Um, or it's like, it's like I've, I've, uh, performed your wedding or I baptized you. I led you to the Lord. Um, you know, I, I've, I've watched your children grow up. Uh, you met your spouse here. Like whenever, whenever it lands there and there's a, the, the cost of the cost of, of, of conviction and believing things that are unpopular and they're unpopular largely because the, the truth is opposed and driven, uh, driven out in so-called conservative evangelical institutions, you know, like Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, things are they're trusted sources that uh, stand opposed to the truth. And you're trying to you're trying to articulate truth, and these people that you know personally are reading and listening to these resources that are saying something opposite of what their local pastor's saying. And so now there's this great cost relationally of standing for a truth, knowing that my good friends are going to be very upset whenever they hear I believe something that they have been told by Russell Moore is evil. And and I think that's a that that makes that makes what's happened in the last few years especially tense because it's, there's hardly any church that hasn't had to deal with this in some level. And and then I'm thinking if you extrapolate that it also happens institutionally because I know it's happened in seminaries. I know a Southern Seminary uh which is where I that's where I graduated from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. A lot of controversy about some of the professors there had spoken positively about critical race theory. Um, and so I'm just curious, like if, if you could speak to what you've seen institutionally um, with, you know, big, well-known, trusted, respected institutions, and they've kind of either failed or have been sliding away from orthodoxy uh, and to where now they're, they're, they're causing harm. Uh, can you speak to that some? Yeah. Yeah. And I could go off on that for, for a long time. Um, I think when I first started noticing it in seminary was like when I wasn't allowed to use Matthew Henry as a commentary in papers. And really? like, yeah, like it was not seen as a respectable source. And mm. so it was very much like, what is the literature in the last 50 years? And I was like, that's, that's suspicious. Um, like what, what's that, what's that about? Um, but it didn't make me suspicious enough to go, you know, okay. Cause I, they're smarter than me. They've got PhDs. So right. I oh, guess yeah. they know things I don't know. So, um, you know, my seminary, I've seen that where they just kept, you know, uh, shoving these narratives forward about race and, and I've only noticed it. And uh, once I look back, I can notice it more, but in the last four years where it's like, we're going to put us, put out a statement on. Um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, and, and not just a statement, but confess our complicity in systemic racism. Um, and then, you know, where rubber meets the road for us is, you know, I had publicly kind of in our church and online celebrated a guy like Russell Moore. And so he had written a lot. Um, and I had said, this is good. This is, you can trust this guy. And then come to find out you can't, you can't now. He's yeah. the editor in chief at Christianity Today. Now I've got people in my church listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And so that, that's kind of where it, it's right on the, right on the ground for a pastor where, you know, I'm sitting in a meeting just last week and I'm like talking about this kind of stuff. Like, why, why are y'all doing podcasts? Why are y'all doing this stuff? I'm like, cause we're trying to like show you what the Bible teaches in a more comprehensive way. So I brought up the example of Lecrae, someone that I used to listen to a lot. And then over the last, I don't know how long, I mean, maybe he's always been this way and I just didn't see it, but like he's, he's out there. Uh, you know, at a stump speech for uh, Warnock down in Georgia, and he's hmm. advocating for all these wicked policies. And so I'm warning this guy in a meeting, and he's like, "Well, I've I've been listening to Lecrae's podcast, and I was like, that that right there is why, why we're speaking because yes. you and the you guys in the pews, the the people in the pews, are being fed this content. You're being fed from the Gospel Coalition, 
from uh, news sources, from something that claims to be uh, partisan, like one one that popped up in the last six years was like something. I think it's called the pour over or something like that. Um, yeah, and it's, it's like, supposed I, to be this. I, I'm familiar with that. It's like a daily briefing. Is that? I've, yeah, I used to subscribe to it, and I got yeah. so turned off by it because everything yeah. was this winsome third way approach to the news. Everything. Yeah, and and I even knew that before. I you can sniff it out. Um, and before I even went on like a screed about, you know, third way winsomeness, I like, you could sense it. You could just see like what they're reporting and like, well, that's not, that's not fair or factual. You're just trying to find a middle. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's what Christians should do is just try to find a middle. And so, you know, you see these institutions and I think one of the biggest things, dude, is like these major institutions with billions of dollars of, uh, uh, a group like world vision, you know, um, having a department uh, of of diversity and inclusion, that kind mm. of stuff, and they Christians just naively give to them supporting policies that are contra biblical, even though the organization claims to be advancing good things for the name of God, they're they're implicitly baking into their system and their gospel message wicked ideologies. Mm -hmm. So you're it's like a billion dollar industry billions of dollars invested in these Christians and Christian institutions. And then Christians are being fed it. The publishers are publishing books. InterVarsity is publishing books like, can white people be saved? You know? And, and you're like, what? Like these, these major uh, powerful money uh, making institutions that are feeding our people books mm -hmm. that are supposed to be trusted are just you know, they're, they're, they're not only abandoning the field, they're giving the enemy ammunition and they're yeah. leading sheep astray. And I was like, that's what, that's what animated a lot of my angst. And uh, hopefully mo more of it was holy than unrighteous. Um, but I was like, well, fine. Like somebody has got to say something. And the people out in Colorado, the institutions that are out here, they're not saying anything. Colorado Christian was one. And I didn't know it at the time, but they were they're actively resisting a lot of this stuff. And so that was good to see. Mm -hmm. But besides them out here, it was like, is there anyone else that sees this? And I got connected with uh, Tom Askell and emailed him and he pointed me, connected me with some pastors locally. And I was like, okay, I'm not crazy. Yeah. But even, even the way epistemologically, I was like trying to wrestle with critical race theory and this kind of stuff. Like how it was just everywhere, popping up everywhere. Mm -hmm. Gospel coalitions promoting books, that are, you yeah. know, networks are promoting books. Um, I was trying to wrestle with, okay, if I'm going to be of the opinion that I dump the entire thing because it's wicked, what else am I going to dump? You know, what mm -hmm. else, uh, what does that say about my own epistemological assumptions and how I apprehend the truth? Um, because the, the slogans I always heard were like, oh, you know, uh, we should plunder the Egyptians, you know, and we should, we should learn yeah. and that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, like you all have a point where you're not plundering Dabney. You're not plundering certain people. You, you don't want right. to plunder Edwards anymore. And so what's your framework, you know? And so th that's kind of some of the stuff institutionally. And you, yeah, p plundering is one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is leaven, that yeah. you're leavening the lump with. Um, and so if you, if you leaven your church or your seminary or whatever with a little bit of critical race theory, it will spread. And I think at the institutional level, you've got the the thing that I've, nobody really talks about is that there are personal interests involved, where it's it's easier to just go along. I think liberals, progressives pushing the agenda, they tend to be highly irrational, emotional people that get very angry and they make a lot of noise when they don't get their way. There, there's an immaturity that is behind progressive liberalism, and so it's easier to just go along. You know, let's let them have their little DEI department. Let's let them, um, you know, have a chapter in, you know, this book. Well, they can write an essay promoting their thing, but it's otherwise a conservative book, whatever. You, you, you accommodate and you appease because you want to keep the peace. You don't want to create problems. But when you do that, you're leavening the institution and you're lending. If you have, an, if you have a conservative reputation, you're lending that conservative reputation to ideas that are unworthy of it. And then unsuspecting people... Um, read or consume that content through that respectability and credibility that you've earned as a conservative institution. And one of the things that, this is one of the things that really, uh, it angered me. Um, you know, there's, the other, um, you know, my thinking can be corrected all the time and I expect that I'm used to that and I value that. But 
what it angers me whenever I encounter something that I feel like I've been duped um, yeah. and misled. And yeah. there's there's a lot of institutions and leaders that I felt I trusted you and I followed you into things that I was ignorant about because I the things I did know, know about you were trustworthy. Um, and so that gave you credibility in other areas where I thought, okay, I, if I need to read a book about racism or sexuality or something, I can trust you on this because I've seen you. And they, they usually tout their reformed credentials. We're Westminster. Right. We're London Baptist. We, we uh, hold to historic orthodoxy on these things. But the areas that those confessional documents don't address where there is a need for really strong uh, conservative biblical thinking, that's where they go off the rails. And whenever I've, whenever I've seen it, it's like, okay, you pulled me into this and you did it because you wanted to, um, I mean, I, I don't know exactly why, but what I sense is that this gets you a byline in the New York Times or this, this keeps things pleasant around the home or in your church. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's an accommodation to worldliness. Yep. But that filters out. That, that affects thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are led by pastors who read this material. That, that sort of thing really frustrates me because it's like there's so much error that has infected so many institutions, and now so many of them are compromised, maybe beyond repair. I, yep. I don't know that authoritatively, but what I sense, it's like there's a all the cultural apparatus and the incentive structures within institutions are built towards compromise and incentivized towards compromise and faithfulness. The cost gets higher and higher for anybody to speak out, and it seems like it's reached a tipping point to where it can't. They they, they they've reached a point of no return. Yeah, there's a lot of that, and I think that one of the big issues for the day is like what institutions are worthy of reform and what which ones just need to be. Uh, torn down. And I know Christians don't like to think that way. They want to think that everyone is their friend. Everyone's a work in progress. You know, anyone that's lost, it's just an opportunity for God to save them and display his mercy. And that that's a genuine, you know, Christian belief. At the same time, we have to wrestle with the parts of scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in Revelation where God judges. And so, um, you know, there was some talk of like, like my, my institution, Denver Seminary, can it be reformed? Can it be brought back from this? And it's just been become radically apparent that there's no interest in that. And, you know, mm -hmm. oftentimes it's funny, you know, institutions uh, typically do not think they need to be reformed. <laughs> you know, they typically mm -hmm. will resist anyone who tries to, uh, you know, uh, change anything. And so, you know, I think it's just really important to assess things soberly where mm -hmm. you put your effort and where you kind of like um, want to see reform happen. That's why I think the Southern Baptists are a great opportunity for reform. It's it's uh, democratic in a way that um, maybe too democratic, but it's it's the kind of the nature of of the institution. Um, and so I think that it's like uh, an organization that's just really uh, ripe to to see another conservative resurgence, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, you have a new generation of leaders coming up that are not duped. They kind of see. They see, but they, whether they've seen behind the curtain or they just know biblically, I've been told a lot of lies. I'm going to get involved. And so the SBC being like, what is it, like 11 million people, you know, in America? Um, mm -hmm. This is a major institution that that's a huge And they have assets. They have huge assets. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, some institutions, it's, it's a website. It's a board. Uh, they publish something, but they don't own property. They don't have history or tradition. Whereas the Southern Baptist Convention, there's there are real hard, tan tangible assets that we just don't want to let the liberals capture. So, yeah. like, how how do you sure. how, how do you think through that as far as what institutions should be recaptured and you should try to reform them? Um, and what's the alternative? Is it just burn them down and try to accelerate their demise? Yeah, right. There's there's a lot. I mean, so w one theory, and it's a good one. I, I think all three of these can be legitimate. Um, one is to build just parallel institutions. Um, so, you know, schooling is a great example. Just start Christian schools, you know. Mm -hmm. um, put all your kids in Christian school. Pull them out of the public education system where they're teaching about these horrible ideologies, the gender unicorn or whatever. 
um, and put it, start parallel systems of, and you could take that as far as commerce too. start Christian businesses, start Christian business networks, all that. Um, another is find the biggest, um, target and see if there's enough of you guys that can cause a holy ruckus in it to affect change. Um, the problem with that is a lot of times the people that are already attached to the institution, um, have too much invested in it. It's like the sunk cost fallacy where yeah. they're like, they, they don't want to cause a ruckus. They, they're interested in rocking the boat. They have friends that are on the board or whatever it is. Um, but it's I think costly. finding big, yeah, that is their, that is their conclusion. It's going yeah. to cost too much to cause, you know, to fight back. Yeah, absolutely. And so you'll get that. The other one that I think actually, it's funny, when I look back on the faithful presence model, I think this was actually the model. They were actually trying to adopt the leftist playbook, um, and they wouldn't have said that. And I don't even know that they're wrong in it, that if you will be faithful over time, you can ascend to positions of power and affect change. Mm -hmm. This is just like exactly what the left did over the last you know centuries, uh, the long march of the institutions. That's just a, the left's version of the faithful presence model. And so... The problem now today is that the left has the the levers of power, so to speak, and they have the control. And so they're going to be able to sniff you out. You know, mm -hmm. um, back in the 60s and 70s, it was like, well, you know, you're a lesbian, um, but we're not going to punish you for being that. And you can come in and teach and advocate for your positions. Now, it's like if you're a Christian and you want to advocate for those, we're not even going to hire you. You know, if you're yeah. if you went to Colorado Christian, if you're a professor there. And now you're trying to apply at University of Colorado. You're not going to be hired here. You know, so it's just a very different temperament culturally. Um, but I think there does there is an opportunity for exposure. You know, a lot of people will have problems with discernment blogs. And I think I think there there's good caution there. There's good uh, sober kind of assessment like, hey, that, that can be unhelpful. At the same time, you know, when you have uh, so much corruption on such a wide scale, these things become necessary to to expose more people to it. I I remember one, my brother texted me one day and was like, "Hey, what is this? Uh, what is this blog I'm reading about David Platt? Can I trust this website?" And it was kind of a website that had a ton of ads on it, you know. Hmm. And I, I read the content. I was like, "I mean, it's legit. Like they're literally linking to sources that Platt has said." So it may not look pretty. It may some of the language in it may be a little too incendiary, but if it's true, it's true, and we got to reckon with that. And so there's also that kind of like high-level exposure, like put out there what they're doing and make it known publicly mm -hmm. um, because a lot of Christians are just living in ignorance and they don't know. Yeah. I think the faithful presence model that you were describing there, it, it, I don't think it works. I don't think it could work equally in both directions because the nature of conservatism is very different than the nature of progressivism. And we make the mistake of thinking that we're playing the same sport. So it's like you've got, um, you know, you've got the, you know, I'm a, I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan. So it's like, okay, so I'm the Bengals and my opponent is the Pittsburgh Steelers. We're playing the same team or same sport, same field, same rules. And we're duking out to see who can win. Is it the conservatives or is it the liberals? When the liberals are playing a different game, the totally. conservative game is maintaining uh, continuity with the past. We want to conserve something and prevent it from changing, or at least whatever changes that happen need to happen very slowly, deliberately, and for a good reason. Whereas progressivism wins by accomplishing change, even change maybe not in the direction they want, but it's but change is their agenda. So it's a, it's a different kind of animal. Well, like I'm trying to hold this thing together. So it's like you know if you want to topple a tower. You can knock it down this way or you knock it down that way or the other way. You know, it's like you can knock it down any number of ways. You know, it's like the youth group illustration. Um, it's easier to pull somebody off the chair than to pull somebody up onto the chair. And that's the way temptation works. And progressivism is inherently destructive. It, it pulls down things that others have built. So that's why liberals don't – It's liberals tend to not be as good at building institutions, but they're good at capturing them. And conservatives do what you suggested earlier, which is we have to build parallel institutions, but then we have to build them in such a way that they're anti-fragile and they can resist future incursions of progressivism into those institutions. It, it's a very difficult thing to accomplish, um, and it's something I've been trying to trying to think through for myself. Uh, you know, even in my own church, I'm like, how do we protect this thing from getting 
toppled over in any number of directions, what might be the next issue? Because like progressives can come at you with critical race theory. They can come at you with feminism. They can come at you with support for Ukraine. I mean, what, what, or, or COVID or, or government Romans, it's like, what is it? It doesn't matter. As long as they knock you off your balance, they right. can, they can successfully bring in this ideology into your institution. And it's very difficult because it, you, a conservative has to defend on all fronts. Does that make sense? Yes. It does make sense. One of the things that I don't think Christians have sufficiently explored are tactics, which I think historically they would frown upon. Um, for example, uh, you know, there, there's another Baptist organization in America, the American Baptist Church, and it, it is also structured ecclesially like the Southern Baptist, very democratic. And so they have churches all over the place that are congregationally governed. Um, the, there's, there's talk about reconquista, I think that's how you say it. Hmm. But this is a tactic that like, when you say it out loud, Christians kind of go like, oh boy. But you could literally take a hundred Christians into these dying American Baptist churches, become members, take it over, fire the liberal pastor, and put in your own pastor. And <laughs> I think that's the kind of stuff that Christians get a little squeamish on, that I wonder, I'm curious if there's more interest today in that than there might have been five years ago, mm -hmm. because it's seen as kind of a dirty move. But that's exactly, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's unbiblical. I'm, I, I failed... I, I'm trying to rack my mind for a scripture to say, can't do that. Um, but it's a very easy thing to, it, like, just practically mm -hmm. speaking, you could do that but next It could be shrewd. I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a shrewd move. Yep. I think like, conservatives, we, we have a larger set of convictions and virtues that we want to uphold. And liberals, they, they run rings around us by just using our virtues against us. It's totally. like conservatives won't do this thing that would seem way beyond the pale, but liberals will. Like they will totally capture, you know, a church or an institution using the means you're describing if they could, whereas conservatives would resist doing it because we are constrained by our own virtue. Right. Um, and so I, I think it, it is a, we have to, we have to think very carefully and ethically um, to, to determine, it's like what, you know, like what, what is, what is permissible and what isn't like what you describe, um, I, it doesn't jump out to me as being just totally off the table. Um, right. I think there are ways that it could be on the table, um, because it's like, you're just using the, the system that's put in place for, for a purpose that it was established for, which is like, right. you have members and they can vote leaders in, vote leaders out. That's why it's there. Let's use the system in play. We're not cheating. <laughs> we're, right. just, we're just using their system, uh, uh, you know, against liberalism. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the uh, the the analogy is kind of like if you imagine uh, churches are um, are like a ship. We're all boats. Your boat is in Cincinnati. Mine's in Boulder, and that ship has guns. It has the ability to do things. Mm -hmm. And if you embrace kind of a piratical in a in a holy sense. Um, Piratical like, as in piracy? Yeah. Did you just you coin know, that word? I've never no. heard of piratical before, but I like it. Piratical. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. So <laughs> if you want to, if you, if you can look at that, because the pirate um, is an interesting figure and, and you can look back on sermons and, and study uh, Cotton Mather and other people who had to minister to pirates and try to save their souls. Hmm. But the pirate uh, goes against the world. Um, he's ungoverned by uh, kind of the, the ruling thing. He goes out on a boat in the ocean and does what he wants to any nation, to any people. And so he's kind of against the world. There's a corollary in Christianity, right? Where we're against the world. And Christians haven't grappled with the fact, I don't think, that, that one, they have enemies, and two, those enemies have institutions. And three, those institutions are probably right down the street. Hmm. And that doesn't, this isn't a call for any kind of arms or anything like that. This is just a, a, a call to apprehend the truth and think clearly about the situation at hand. These are institutions that are hanging transgender flags on historically Christian churches. These yeah. are enemies. Yeah, you can still, right. you should pray for them. You should love them, but you should also view them as such, meaning that you, you don't want them to be in your town. Like you just, I, they're, they're definitely that way with us. Uh, yeah. they have no problem doing that. And I think we have to get back to the Bible. We have to get back to Christian virtue, how Jesus treated the Pharisees in his day, 
And we have to be honest about that rather than pretending like, well, they want, they just have a different vision of the world and that's fine. I mean, go read Thomas Sowell's, uh, the, his book on two visions, that kind of stuff. I mean, these are radically opposed conceptions of reality. And so unless Christians can embrace uh, a bit of more piratical view of how they go about starting fires, attacking the enemy, all that kind of stuff, then we're going to continue to see conservatives retreat, 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 start parallel institutions. Those institutions get taken over and we need to be more offensive, uh, I would say. Uh, and not for the sake of being offensive, but for the sake of the truth of the gospel. Just say yeah. what the Bible says plainly. So that that would be my encouragement. Yeah, that's great. Christian piracy. Yeah. I don't, is that better than Christian nationalism? Christian piracy? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? That's good. Well, I appreciate your time uh, spending this this hour having a conversation with me, Chase. It's 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 great seeing you again. Good talking to you and just hearing hearing how you're processing some of these things because my mind is right there with you. Um, so, what is you know for for people to to, to track with you in terms of um, online presence, writing? Um, what what's a good place to keep in touch with you? Yeah, I publish all my stuff over on my Twitter. Um, anytime there's a new resource, you can go to my Twitter. My username is. J Chase Davis. Um, you can always go to my website and find links to various things there, jchasedavis.com. Um, pick up my book, Trinitarian Formation, uh, on Amazon. And you can go to our church website, boulderwell.org, to keep up with any sermons or content we're producing there. So those would be a few places you can go to check stuff out. Yeah. I really appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate um, your co-pastor, Matt Patrick, is also a friend. Um, you guys are doing good work. Keep it up. And uh, thanks for joining me today, Chase. This was great. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.